good to see everyone here tonight. I apologize for not being here last week, but I understand that it was aptly taken care of, or at least quickly taken care of. So if you can't be good, at least be fast and get people dismissed on time. So hopefully you at least got one or the other last week. But we are in a study of the book of Revelation, and uh, we're just really kind of getting into it. And we call it Revelation Light. Not because we're taking it easy on the book of Revelation as much as it is. You know, the whole purpose of what we're trying to do is really get the nutrition, but not the wasted calories out of it. And the wasted calories, we've talked before, just, you know, people want to go to the book of Revelation and use it as some roadmap to the end of the world and all kinds of weird stuff. And what do these numbers mean? And who is that? And they watch CNN. And, and at the end of the day, they just goofed up. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, it goofed up not just because they just get goofy about it, but goofed up because they completely miss God's purpose of what I consider to be one of the most overlooked but yet beautifully written books of the Bible. I mean, you can't really pick one book and say any, one book's any better than the other. It's, it's not that. But it, you know, to me, I just really love what goes on. Because, you know, it is a revelation of Jesus. And everything else is important, but it's all about this revelation of who Christ really is. And what happens is that John gets a glimpse of some things, you know, kind of behind the scenes, if you will, to really, because remember, now John got to see, if you go back, you know, to the book of John, you know, we know that John was with Jesus. And we know that John got to see an aspect of Jesus, but just such a small aspect of who Jesus really is, what Jesus is all about, what Jesus is, his power, his capability, his compassion, all those things. John and the apostles, even though they were with him, day and night only saw such a small glimpse. And the only possible way that they could even see that small glimpse is for Jesus to become flesh and take on sort of humanity. And that's the only way that they could even kind of slightly on their best day, and we know they struggled with it, get their head around who the Christ really is. So now we come in, this is the revelation of Christ. This week, don't laugh, but we're actually going to cover three chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. And yes, there's a reasonable chance you'll still have to have the headlights on, but I'll get you home before Sports Center uh, or anything else. Um, but we're going to get through three chapters. And, you know, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and, you know, the letters to the church. But in the beginning, what we're going to see is the revelation begins. From the very minute that Jesus visits John, he is revealing himself. And John is witnessing this. So we're going to, let's get going. So a quick review. Uh, can't review too much. We really have only done, been in here a couple of weeks. But just, you know, keep in mind that, you know, we, we kind of said, you know, we got to get our game face on when it comes to Revelation, that, which is to say that we've got to sort of throw off the baggage that the world puts on the book and realize that it was written for that time. You know, time and time again, it was written about things that would soon happen. Not soon as in, uh, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Not that kind of soon, but it was written to be relevant to the readers at the time. Okay, so you know, let's just kind of, let's just charge ahead. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. 
Revelation is one of those neat books. You know, people ought to be able to find it. You know, if you go to Revelation, go to Genesis, and you got to, you know, we, we probably, probably ought to be able to handle that. So we're going to start, and we're really going to start kind of down in verses 9 and 10. We talked about the first three verses a couple of weeks ago about how it really sets the stage for what's going on, about things to soon pass, how he's to write, and, and, you know, they're supposed to, you know, this prophecy, and that they are blessed if they do that. And we understood that, you know, the only way that they could be blessed then is if they had the ability to comprehend it. So, Anyways, so we're going to start here in verse 9, and in verse 9, John introduces himself. Okay, that's, and one of the things that you'll notice is, you know, in several places in here, the, the, it looks a lot like any other epistle. You know, the same way that Paul would say, Paul, you know, da, 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 to the church here, to the saints here. Well, that's kind of what he's saying here. I, John, and, but he says two things about himself. First of all, he describes himself as a brother, there in verse 9. And then he goes on to talk about a fellow partaker. Look at these things. The tribulation, the kingdom, the perseverance, which are in Christ Jesus. Now this is really important because keep in mind that the backdrop politically of things that are going on here is Christians are being persecuted. Christians are having a rough time of it all. And within the pages of this letter, of this revelation, comfort is provided. And what we're going to see is that God is in control, Christ is in control. But as John writes this letter, he just says, I'm a brother. But not only is he a brother, he says, I'm a fellow partaker. And basically what he's saying is, I'm a fellow partaker in everything that you guys are going through. I just think that's a cool way to start a letter. You know, it's really one of the things that frustrates my son. There's many things that frustrate me, either one of them, right? And, and I look for those opportunities, and I just kind of, not to the point that I exasperate them to anger, you know, so I'm, I'm still scriptural and, and everything like that. But where I sort of describe, well, I really think you ought to do this, and I think you ought to do this, and I think you ought to do this. You know, I really kind of played a horrible game. Should have done this, this, and this. And then they kind of quickly throw back, well, that's easy for you to say. You're up in the stands. Fair point. Okay, well, this isn't John writing from the stands to the Christians, kind of on the battlefield. He's saying, I'm a fellow partaker in all of this. Okay, so he kind of introduces himself. Then he goes on, and he's going to introduce his circumstances. Okay, right there, again, in verse 9, he says, you know, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, he's on an island. He's imprisoned for his role in the gospel is what he's saying. Now, keep in mind that the prison he was in was not the same prison, you know, some of the really deep, dark dungeons. That typically, when you went and you kind of exiled to Patmos, it was not necessarily a fun place, even though it's a beautiful island. I mean, if you kind of look at it, I mean, it's, well, we'll take a look at it. I mean, it's kind of, ooh, wonderful. Huh, huh, that doesn't look right, does it? That rectangle just sort of. Well, that rectangle is where Patmos is, and on my handout, it looks right. Anyways, it's just right up there in the Aegean Sea, really kind of just on the east side of, of Italy, kind of right there, kind of in the Greek Isles. It's a very pretty, it's a very pretty part of the Mediterranean, but it was really sort of a secluded island. 
And it's where you stuck people back then. And it's not that it, it wasn't like sticking somebody on Alcatraz necessarily. You know, it isn't like you were trying to really just make them suffer or anything like that. You know, a lot of times it was the kind of people that's like, you know, if things were different, we'd kill them. But man, we'd have an uprising if we did. Let's just go stick them on this island. People will forget about them and they'll waste away and they'll just kind of. And so he was really kind of, it was almost like house arrest. It wasn't a great time, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make it sound like, you know, he was really enjoying it or, or anything like that or, you know, he's, you know, up at eight and doing Pilates and then he would move on to the horseback riding or it wasn't Club Med or anything like that. So he's there. And that's the setting. He is imprisoned for what he's doing for the gospel. Okay, now, now he's going to introduce the setting. Verse 10, it's the Lord's day, he says, when all this transpires, and he's in the spirit. Now, I'm very, very thankful that I tend not to open up to questions, because I don't want you asking me what in the spirit means. I really don't. But let's talk about what it likely meant and what it doesn't mean. This was not, he was not dreaming this. Okay? He was also not meditating. However it worked, whatever happened back then, keep in mind that the, you know, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of the first century Christians a little bit different than the Holy Spirit works in the lives of us today. And so somehow there was, he was sort of in the spirit, he was sort of connected, there was a, a, you know, a revealing process, whatever that is. He doesn't describe it in great detail, that's, which is fine with me, because that just means that none of us you know, know for certain exactly how that worked. But you know, the, the, the kind of the vision is he's kind of sitting there, maybe over a desk doing something, potentially you know, meditating. You know, he started on, on the Word of God or writing a letter or something like that, and he sort of gets caught up in the spirit. And I hate to use words like trance or daydream or something like that, because it really sort of cheapens what the Holy Spirit does. But somehow he is connecting through the Spirit in a, in a unique way. All right? So you kind of get the sense. He's there on, on, on this island. He's, he's in prison. And so, all right. So now, here we go. What follows then in verses 11 through 17, really 11 through 20, are just an absolute beautiful passage, a phenomenal passage. When you stop and, and close your eyes and just sort of imagine what is happening here, and you imagine everything that's going on, this is a phenomenal group of verses. Because Jesus now is going to come visit John. Now, one of the things that you're going to really see is that when people had the opportunity to visit Christ, to truly partake of, you know, just some semblance of who Jesus is. Oh, wow. It was awesome, wasn't it? I mean, you think about when Paul came face to face with Jesus. When the apostles, you know, as part of the transfiguration or as they saw him, you know, they died, just there was something so unique about him. Okay, it's about to happen. These are great verses. I would encourage you to read them. And, uh, I mean, please read them. Uh, and so here we go. John turns to see Jesus. Now, it starts with a voice. And, and if you look right there, he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit, 
And then I heard a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Okay, right away, here comes this imagery. How many of you have ever played the trumpet, heard the trumpet? You know what a trumpet is. What is special about a trumpet or a bugle? I mean, I know a bugle doesn't have the little on top, but okay. What's unique about them? Do what? They're loud, they're piercing. Really, there's no music majors in here? Where's Karen Wagner? The, the bugle or the trumpet is the highest pitch of the brass instruments. You know, and so obviously more so than a tuba. But that's why those things got used. Because the pitch of a trumpet, I mean, this is so very special because we're going to read about trumpets later on. Because the pitch of a trumpet is unique. It is one of those universal pitches that is it's, it's more easily heard by, by a wide variety of people. It's easier to hear. That is why it gets used. That, it's just kind of a little bit more masculine than kind of, you know, grabbing a flute and going, you know, nobody really takes a city, you know, to the tune of a flute, I guess. But, you know, a trumpet is very, very clear. And what John is saying is, in a very loud clear fashion, I heard the voice of Jesus. And then I turned around. And what he turned around and what he saw, I cannot possibly... Well, I guess we don't know what it's going to look like either. Okay. I liked it better when my greatest stress was getting from Mustang, Oklahoma here and an obscene amount of time. But, okay, he turned around. Now we're going to have to describe it. He talks about the voice that was speaking to me. He sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands is the Son of Man. And look at some of the... But what I want you to do is I want you to look at the imagery that John describes. Remember, John is asked to write what he sees. So John turns around and he sees seven lampstands, seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of these lampstands is a person. Unlike anything he's ever seen. You know, it's got a robe. He's got a robe on. He's got a golden girdle. Not just any girdle to it all, but it's golden. The feet are burnished bronze. And he goes on to say, bronze like it just came out of the fire. Kind of bronze. Not on fire, but like it just came out of the furnace. Glowing. But yet bronze. He said, this is, and this is what he sees. And he goes on to say, but look now, look what he says about his voice. The voice like many waters. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? What's that like? Besides wet. Just the sound. I mean, just the sound of water. You know, you know, something very, very simple. Flowing, but you get enough of it flowing and it's deafening, isn't it? Even though the pitch of the sound isn't really, you know, high pitched or anything like that, it is just, it's, you can't talk over it, can you? You know, if you, it's, it's almost like, I mean, our, for those of you that haven't been there, imagine just a really hard rain. 
You know, one of those rains that is so hard that you, that you almost, that you just can't hear the person next to you. And what John says is, when I turned around, I saw this man, the Son of Man. He's talking about Jesus here. I saw him dressed in absolute royalty, glowing his face just like the sun, just radiating at me. And a voice that was so clear, it was like a trumpet, but yet, like many waters, you couldn't talk over Nothing was going to talk over the voice of what John is seeing. And so he goes on and describes that the mouth is like a sword. Not that there's a sword coming out of his mouth, but when he spoke, the words that he used were powerful like a sword. And we know people like that, you know, that, and, and oftentimes it's, it's in the negative context about how someone can really cut somebody else down with their words, but just his words, his voice. You know, so many times we just, you know, and, and again, keep in mind that the Jesus that John saw on earth was sort of born out of humanity more than anything else. And so John didn't get to see this side of Jesus. I don't think Jesus had a feeble voice. I don't think that he had a, a timid voice. I don't think that he, guys, if you want to, go to all the world. I don't think he talked that way at all. But he talked like a man. And what John is saying is, oh, when I turned around, the one that I saw, the lamb, the son of man, when he spoke, you couldn't hear anything else. And his words cut like a knife, like a sword, and rang out like a trumpet so that all could hear. And now if you look at all, the, and, and the face just radiated like the sun. Remember the transfiguration? When that took place, and just how that just threw them off, just as, you know, as God you know, went down and, and did that to Jesus so that people could understand there's something very, very special about him? That's exactly what John is seeing. He's seeing this radiance coming off of him. Now, John does the absolute only logical thing you can possibly do. Verse 17, he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When you come face to face with the Lord, there really is no other option. When you really bask in his Essence. And especially as he's going to begin, because keep in mind the glimpse that we're going to see in Revelation is the power of Christ. Not just the power over the great, I mean the power of Christ. The power over the things that he said he would have power over, John's going to see. John's going to get a glimpse of. And to come face to face with that, John said, ah, the only thing I could do is fall down as if I were dead. Notice he doesn't say, I bowed down and, you know, praised him. He said, I just fell on my face as if I was dead. The essence of Christ was so overwhelming, it just about sucked the life out of me, John says. Now, what happens next is Jesus begins to instill immediate comfort and confidence. And this, to me, this is awesome. I really absolutely love 
what he does, his first thing there, and he laid his right hand upon me. You know, growing up, I had sort of an interesting family. Love them to death. But, you know, we were not the most, how should I put it, demonstrative in, in terms of love and compassion and stuff and things like that. I mean, I, you know, we knew that we loved each other, and so therefore there's really no reason to say it out loud since we kind of had that knowledge. And, and so, you know, we were kind of not a lot of hugging, you know. Anita was just like, had no earthly idea that people were like that. In fact, you know, I mean, we were gracious, don't get me wrong, and, and somewhat hospitable in our own little crockpot sort of way, but if you wanted to throw my family off, come over to our house and cry. I mean, just shed some tears, and four of us would have just gone, I mean, we, we would have had no earthly idea what to do. I mean, I, I mean, that's just how we were. I mean, I, and I'm not saying that is Chris. I mean, it's because I want you to understand, you know, that that's just kind of, that, that was life. I mean, I, I mean, one of them, I mean, it was rare to see anybody cry. And when they did, it was kind of, oh, let's just look straight ahead. And, you know, eventually it'll stop and, you know, and everything like that. And when the sniffling kind of dies off, you know, then, okay, then we'll re-engage in conversation or, or anything. That's just kind of how things were. And, you know, my dad especially. And... I can remember one time, uh, and this, this only happened to me probably three times. I can remember all three times. One in particular. I had my driver's license for about a month, baby. And I did something like, you know, 16-year-olds tend to do stupid beyond human comprehension. You know, involving a car and sort of, in, you know, side over side and rolling down the side of a hill and, and things like that without a seat belt and, you know, you name it, through a fence. I mean, it was, it was a bad deal. <laughs> and so, you know, needless to say, a few of Oklahoma City's finest, you know, came and, you know, were going to talk to me <laughs> about things. And I'm bleeding from the head and just, you know, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm shaking, I'm scared to death. Absolutely scared to death. My dad shows up. And I'm even more scared now, right? I mean, it's like, huh, oh, good, Dad's here, you know, kind of a thing. And, you know, he, he, he was a quiet man. It didn't take him long to kind of get a sense of what was going on. He walks past me. He's going to talk to the officers. And he says, don't worry. He said, we'll talk about this when we get home. He put his right hand on my back. And he said, I got it. You know, we were not overly demonstrative in love and compassion and everything like that, but I can still, 30 years later, remember the feeling, the comfort, the confidence that I got that very moment for that half a second when he put his right hand on my back and all he told me was, I got this. That's what Jesus did for John in verse 17. John has no earthly idea what to think. And he falls down and Jesus puts his right hand on his back. Just, just kind of touches him. And then he goes on to say, John, I am the first, I am the last. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I was once dead and now I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death, I have the keys of Hades. John, I got this. 
Right away, this is not a, a bragging thing or anything like that. This is Jesus revealing himself, just giving John a glimpse of the absolute power that he has. And how a lot of weird stuff is about to happen. And how between you know, all these emperors and everything like that, there's a whole bunch of horrible things going on. But what Jesus wants John to know in this revelation process is, I got this. And in an unapologetic way, begins to show John, John, I got this. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I was once dead. I will die no more. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I hold the keys. I hold the keys to anything. That death would throw at you, or that Hades would throw at you. John, I got this. And so he goes on to say, you know, and, and he reminds him one more time, you know, okay, John, write what you are about to see, write what you are about to take, what's about to take place, and I just want you to understand these lampstands, you know, they refer to the seven churches, and that we're going to read about in just a second. So, here we go. Let's keep going now. Let's jump into chapter 2. But like I said, you know, too many times we read Revelation and we just almost do this little leapfrog from verses, you know, 11 to we want to get to chapter 2. Actually, we want to get to where there's dragons and stuff like that and we kind of get to these. No, it's the initial revelation in the very beginning. So right away, John comes face to face. Now, in a voice... That rings out like a trumpet. That can't be spoken over like mighty waters. That has the precision and the power of a sword. John says, uh, Jesus says, write these things to the seven churches. And he goes on and each of them's got their own passage. And we're going to do that real quick. And, you know, we're going to have to do seven churches in seven minutes. Okay, first he talks to Ephesus. Ephesus in chapter 2, 1 through 7. You can read that. We're not going to read in great detail or anything like that. We just want to, because I want to get to where we kind of really understand some of the high points of what we're talking about here. As he talks about Ephesus, he struck, you know, right away, he talks about how he is well aware of them, intimately aware of what they're doing, what they're going through. And he wants them to know that. And he goes on to talk about their struggles and their perseverance and how they've got this great intolerance for false teaching. But he says, you've got to remember your first love. You've got to remember. And not only do you need to remember your first love, but he uses words like repent. You need to repent and to return to what you formerly did. And that there was great danger if you don't. And we could spend a lot of time just talking about that. You know, staying with your first love. Keep doing the things that you did. When you were a new Christian, is really what that comes down to. You know, back when you were just so in love with your faith that it permeated everything you said, everything you did, all of your decisions and everything like that. He says, get back to that. Repent. You know, and again, I don't, you know, what he's saying, you know, when you throw a word like repent in there, I mean, you're, you're taking it pretty serious. You're saying you've got to change. You've got to go back to that. You've got to recognize that it's wrong. You've got to go back to your first love. Okay. Smyrna. Told you we'd move kind of quick. 
probably check the time, make sure we're not going too quick. Oh, oh no, we're not. Okay. Okay. In Smyrna, again, he talks to, you know, the, this group in Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. You know, the first and the last who was dead and is to come says this. Again, his constant reminder. You know, the first, the last, who was and is and is to come, says this. Jesus is intimately aware, again, of their circumstances. And and this is going to be a theme throughout the entire book of Revelation, is how Jesus, how God, is intimately aware of what his people are going through. That we serve a God that no matter how chaotic things may be, no matter how crazy things may seem, No matter how upside down the world may be, no matter how goofy our life may be or whatever, it doesn't really matter. No matter how insignificant we may feel that we are in the grand play of life, God sees everything about us. God is intimately aware of what we're doing and what we're going through and our trials and our tribulations, our struggles, our successes, all of those things. And time and time again, John has revealed to him you know, in, in being caught up in the Spirit is going to remind people, this is the Christ that we serve, one who is intimately aware. Because all of us either have, are, or will go through a period of time when we feel so insignificant that we feel our existence doesn't matter, our struggles don't matter, our successes don't matter. All of us go through that. All of us, you either have, you either are, or you will go through a period of time when in the back recesses of your mind, you think you just not noticed. And that's a horrible feeling, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's painful. It causes people to do very, very irrational things. When they think that they are just so insignificant, but what Jesus says is, I see you. Tell them, John, I see them. And tell them that I understand that the tribulations, and what he says is that they've got poverty. You know, that they're intimately aware of the tribulations, but also of their poverty. And keep in mind, there's a lot of stuff going on around here. But what he wants to tell them is that they've got a deeper wealth possessed by those that are in Christ. Yes, you've got poverty. Yes, you are dirt broke, but you've got this far greater wealth, Jesus says. Tell them that in the midst of all of these trials and tribulations, everything like that, you've got a far greater wealth than anything you And to continue on doing what you're doing. It's a simple message. Recognize just how blessed you really are and keep doing what you're doing. He goes on to Pergamum. Pergamum, chapter 2, 12 through 17. Now, Pergamon had some problems. Pergamon had some remnants of some idol worship. Remnants of some things going on there. Some Baal issues. And it was causing, you know, issues like immorality. And eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And what he says is, in essence, do not let the world define your standards. That's what they were doing with the Baal worship. They were letting the world define the standards. Do not let that happen. Repent. Do not be an enemy of Christ. They like doing a play tonight. Oh, good. Phew. 
I was starting to feel really bad about myself. And I was just like, really? My watch doesn't work. Nobody, okay. Anyways, all right. Repent. Don't be an enemy of Christ. Now, folks, that's tough love, isn't it? It's really tough love. But he says, you got to quit that. You better repent. You have better repent. He who has an ear, let him hear. He goes on to Thyatira. Now, hey, Thyatira, you know, he begins to talk about how, you know, they were growing spiritually. You know, what he says is the things that they're doing today are stronger than the things that they used to do. That's just a nice way of saying, hey, you're getting better at this. You are growing. But then he goes on to say, but I do have this one thing, verse 20, against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate her. And you go on and you look at what, the, what he really, what he's so bothered by it. And what he wants them to do is, is, you guys have got to take a strong stand about anybody that would lead my people away. That was the message bound up in this reference to Jezebel. You guys tolerate her. And what Jesus, remember, in, in that voice, and in that presence, what Jesus is saying, she is leading my people away. Now remember, when Jesus was on the earth, what did he say? Would be a far better situation than those that would lead others astray. Remember, grab the whole mill, put it around your neck, jump in the water. And you're better off than those that would lead my children astray. The shepherd takes his sheep very, very seriously. And he has got great compassion, and he has got great grace and love. But you want to get the shepherd? You want to get the son of man? You want to get the Jesus that we serve pretty riled up? Lead his sheep astray. Oh, he's got no patience for that. I can't imagine what that must have been like in that voice. The voice of many, many waters. You tolerate Jezebel. Remember those times that, you know, in guys we tend to remember more than anything else? You know, because moms tend to kind of, you know, they're kind of all over the place. And, you know, I know I was in trouble. I'm not really sure what just happened. But, but when dad did it, dad could always, dads could always kind of hit that voice. You know, it just, you know, somewhere in there, he'd kind of, ooh, I mean, it just, you know, one part Darth Vader, one part, you know, I don't know what, Charlton Heston, and he hid that voice, a little John Wayne in there, and there wouldn't be three or four words come out of his mouth. And I mean, it was crystal clear. And that's what Jesus doing. Do not tolerate anybody that lead my children astray. Okay, we go on. That was Thyatira. Let's... Jump on over to Sardis. Now with Sardis, here Sardis kind of had an interesting thing. They looked busy. They thought they were busy. They were active. They were doing lots of things. I mean, on the outward appearance, they really thought themselves as busy folk, doing the right things and everything like that. But what Jesus is telling them is, mm, no, I really don't think so. In verse 2, he says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You've got a lot of stuff started. 
lot of stuff in the works. He hadn't finished a single one of them. But yet they felt busy. They've got, in fact, he goes on to talk about how they've got a soiled faith. Well, that's tough. Because if you don't say they didn't really do anything evil, I mean, we don't have any references to immorality and fornication and, and, and all, you know, Baal worship or anything like that. But Jesus said, hey, you're just not finishing what you started. And the message in all of that is finishing is critical. Finishing is absolute. That is the, one of the greatest you know, underlying message as you look through the book of Exodus and if you look as they leave Egypt on into the promised land, one of the great underlying messages is it isn't enough just to leave Egypt. You've got to get to the promised land. It's not enough just to start the journey. You've got to finish the journey. And that's what Jesus condemns them for. Finish what you start. And that's just, I think it's kind of humbling, doesn't it? Oh, good thing that he was writing it just to Sardis, not to Jimus or anything like that. I think there's a message in there, though. Finish what you start. He goes on, and now he's going to talk about Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia. Pennsylvania, obviously. Um, they were commended for their faith. They were commended, and, and what Jesus wanted them to know is that what they were going through has not gone, gone unnoticed. In fact, what he even goes on to say is, yet even though you've got little power, even though you're feeble, even though you don't have great wealth, even though you don't have great power, you continue to be faithful unto God. And you should be, and I see it. Jesus says, I notice it. And what, and, and the whole point in all this, when all of this breaks out and God starts taking care of business, when Jesus steps in and says, I got this, I know that you've been faithful. I, and again, a common theme and just a constant theme. I know that. Remember, you know, what, you ever had that thing where, you know, the, the, your kids get in trouble? At school, and they kind of plead that I was the only one, and if but for the horrible vision of the teacher, you know I was the only one. Okay, that happens. Why did I get pulled over for speeding? I don't know. It wasn't just me, you know. And we just we we hate that, don't we? And what Jesus is saying, I see it, and the message in all of this. And keep in mind, he is writing to a church. In an area that's being persecuted. That's going through tribulations. That is suffering for the cause of Christ. He is writing from prison. And what he's saying is, number one, it is possible to remain faithful. That despite your weakness, despite your lack of power, despite everything that you think is going against you, it is possible to be faithful. And the second thing is, it is profitable to be faithful. And he goes on to describe this open door. Oh, the cultural references to that. To a group of people that knew closed doors more than they knew open doors. To a group of people that lived in a society that shut their doors to Christians. More often than not, an open door. Okay, Laodicea. Laodicea, that's the one where we get that lukewarm spitting it out of the mouth. You know, 
you know, kind of a thing that we think is all fun and everything like that. Works great for VBS and, and everything like that. And that's the, the, the image. But the whole point here that he's going to describe in Laodicea is you guys lack zeal. You guys are complacent. And you're kind of deluded in your opinion of yourself, Jesus says. You're not evil. You're not horrible folks. You're just complacent. You've lost the zeal. Now what I want you to do is as you scan back through here, remember he's writing to seven churches that are going through trials and tribulations. They're going through tough times. They're being persecuted. It's horrible. They're being surrounded by all kinds of pagan images and emperor worship and all kinds of things that are contrary to the call of Christ. All kinds of things. They're being persecuted spiritually. They're being persecuted financially. They're being persecuted physically. All of those things. Everything going against them. And look at what Jesus wants them to know. It's absolutely fascinating. Because sometimes we forget the lesson. You know, we think, oh, we need to talk about this, and we need to talk about this, and we need to talk about this. and Well, maybe so, but look at what Jesus said was important. Keeping your zeal. Making sure that everybody remains faithful. That nobody's led astray. Finishing what you started. Staying true to that first love that you've got in Christ Jesus. He doesn't talk about the whole host of all those things that we tend to worry about some days. When we think that, you know, the world's just just going by the wayside. Oh, we need this and we need to do this. And, and we try to break it down to a list of do's and don'ts. And oh, we need to get on the school board and we need to, and all that. And we turn it into these little actionable things. No, no, no. When Jesus came to John... At a time far greater, you know, from a tribulation standpoint than anything that we're going to go through. He says, stay faithful. Keep the children faithful. Put God first. Flee from immorality. Finish the good works that you start. Maintain the zeal. And despite the fact that you are weak and that you are feeble and you got no money, don't worry about it because you've got far greater riches than anything we can possibly imagine. Remember, that was, that was what Gideon worried about. He said, oh, I'm, you know, we're the smallest tribe and, and I'm threshing wheat here by myself in this little, this little press here and I, I can't possibly lead an army. Now, shut up, Gideon, and get out there. It's not you doing it, it's God. But it's possible. And he talks about the things that are truly important during tribulation. And I think somewhere in all of this, not only is there a lesson as we understand Revelation, but there's really a a pretty good lesson for us. Because sometimes we try to overcomplicate things a little bit. We try to make it a little bit more difficult. You know, we think somehow we need a little 12-part sermon and tapes and videos and everything like that. And, and, and you know what? There are some things that are that way. But when Jesus came and visited John, he said, you tell the churches. It's pretty simple. Active faith, finishing, everything like that. All right. Next week, go ahead and read chapter 4. Because the revelation is going to continue.
So we kind of had this period of time where he first he reveals himself as he's about. He talks to John. He says, John, write these things. Now in chapter 4, you know, we really start getting into it pretty good. So read chapter 4 and uh, let's close in prayer. Read chapter 4 in your own time. We're going to close in prayer right now. Father God, for your son, we say thank you, but that just doesn't seem to cut it. Father, we truly cannot yet comprehend his essence, his nature. Father, we are mindful of his sacrifice, we're mindful of his death. But God, we look forward to that time where we can truly come face to face with his victory. And the victory that he has reserved for us. God, we go through tough times. God, we go through struggles. Some of them are part of the world, and some of them are just kind of self-inflicted. God, help us to very simply focus on the same things that you asked seven churches to focus on. And to stay true to you. God, we love you so very much. We love your word, and we're grateful for the opportunity to study it. Through Christ we pray. Amen. All right, we'll see you all next week.